This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Monday, October the 23rd, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, municipalities in Ontario are expressing their frustrations with the government's Greenbelt Development Plan, or should I say the backtracking on the Greenbelt Development Plan. Michelle McQuig from the Canadian Press will give you the updates on this news story. The Canadian Armed Forces hosted a Soldier On conference recently. Marco Pasqua will share some of his takeaways from the event. And the Tripping On Air podcast has a new season coming your way. Host Ardra Shepard will tell you all about it. That and so much more coming your way over the course of the next couple of hours on the mighty airwaves of AMI-tv. Thank you for starting your week with Now with Dave Brown. A lot of wits there. Just saying thank you for starting your week with me. Let's get to the top story of the day, and it's from transportation. A lot of news agencies might not think this is the top story of the day, but this monster over here thinks it is. The head of Via Rail thinks the federal government should consider a passenger bill of rights comparable to the one in place for air travelers. CEO Mario Pelican says the federal government should move towards a charter that would ensure that train passengers receive compensation for long delays. Here's the catch, though. He believes that if the reason for the disruption stems from one of Canada's two main freight railways, then the freight companies should have to pay that compensation, those fines. But here's where the devil is in the details. VIA uses the tracks owned by freight companies. Peloquin is also calling for rules that would give the Crown Corporation's trains formal right-of-way over freight trains. The federal government has previously indicated that they would create a train travel bill of rights from April 1st to June 30th, VIA saw 62% of its trains arrive on time. That's an improvement from 53% a year earlier. I thought you might find that story interesting. The transportation file getting around via mass transit, kind of an important component of the disability experience. Over to the journalism file, a little bit of navel-gazing. The CBC will continue its policy of largely staying off Twitter. Rob Westgate has the story. Spokesman Leon Marr says X doesn't bring a lot of traffic for the broadcaster and the audience and engagement it gets from the platform is limited. He wouldn't provide any data, but pointed to a 2020 Reuters Institute report that shows just 11% of Canadians use X for news. CBC and Radio Canada significantly reduced their footprints on X after the social media platform labeled them as government-funded media back in April. CBC responded saying it didn't meet Twitter's definition of government-funded media, noting its independence is enshrined in the Broadcasting Act. Rob Westgate, the Canadian Press. From the business and economy file, energy giant Chevron is buying Hess for, wait for it, 
$53 billion. Julie Walker has the story. The Chevron Hess deal comes less than two weeks after ExxonMobil said it would acquire Pioneer Natural Resources for about $60 billion. Crude prices are up 9% this year and have been hovering around $90 per barrel for about two months. Chevron says the acquisition of Hess adds a major oil field in Guyana as well as shale fields in North Dakota. Chevron is paying for Hess with stock. The deal still needs approval by Hess shareholders. I'm Julie Walker. Here's a story from the United States that strikes me as interesting. The Biden administration is trying to regionally diversify the technology industry. Jennifer King explains. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo, who joins President Biden at today's announcement, told reporters she has never seen as much interest in any initiative as this one. Today, the White House reveals the 31 regions selected out of over 400 that applied to share $500 million in grants to spur tech innovation and bring jobs to areas beyond current tech centers like San Francisco and Austin. The recipients range from Montana to Puerto Rico, from Nevada to Wisconsin. The funding came from a $10 billion authorization in last year's Chips and Science Act to stimulate investment in new technologies like artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and biotech. The hubs tie in to President Biden's economic message ahead of his re-election bid in 2024, saying that Americans should be able to find well-paid jobs wherever they live. Jennifer King, Washington. You know, that story is interesting not because of well-paid jobs wherever you live. It's about the housing crisis. It's about the cost of living. If you consider the tech hub that is the Bay Area of California, so San Francisco, Oakland, San Jose, et cetera, you're talking about one-bedroom apartments that cost $5,000 a month to live in. So how can you truly have a thriving industry with new talent if an entry-level job needs to pay you like half a million dollars a year to afford to pay rent? So what do you do? How do you get these tech hubs elsewhere where the innovation can be spurred, but perhaps the cost of living allows more people to enter the industry? You know, there are all these pockets of America that are interesting, right? Chattanooga, Tennessee, which is a little bit of a tech hub in the South. We're talking about six bedroom houses for like 400 grand, right? To live in the middle of the city. So what are you doing when you're talking about diversifying an industry, regionally speaking, it's not just about good-paying jobs around the country. It's ultimately about the cost of living around the country, too, because Austin and the Bay Area and Boston, Massachusetts and New York City and Los Angeles, California, you can't just have stuff in those places. So better give a shout-out to Seattle, Washington, or people are going to get cranky with me. But Boise, Idaho, Missoula, Montana... Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. These are places where you want to try and spur economic activity. And if you can invest to build hubs, that's a good thing. It's probably something that should be considered in Canada. You can't just have Toronto and Vancouver and to a certain degree like Montreal and Calgary and Ottawa and Halifax carrying the freight. It's time to maybe start diversifying our economic sectors as well. One more story for you, and it's from the American political file. The U.S. House of Representatives still does not have a speaker. Nine new candidates have emerged. M. Wynn has the list. 
Among the contenders, Byron Donalds of Florida, retired Marine Corps Lieutenant General Jack Bergman of Michigan, and Majority Whip Tom Emmer of Minnesota, who's backed by ousted Speaker Kevin McCarthy. While Emmer is seen as the current frontrunner, the number three House Republican is disliked by Donald Trump's congressional allies for voting to uphold President Biden's 2020 electoral victory. Federal funding runs out in mid-November in the U.S. If the House can't find a speaker and reach a funding deal, there'd be a government shutdown. So the clowns continue to engage in the circus that is American democracy. Let's get to the daily polls at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. And that issue of politicians behaving poorly was the topic of Friday's poll at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. You were asked, do you have any tolerance for politicians behaving poorly in the halls of government? 13% of you said yes, and 87% of you said no. Paul tweets in, I've little patience for the antics of some politicians. Politicians are paid handsome salaries with privileges the average, the average citizen does not enjoy. Politicians have an obligation to do their best. The people's business is serious business. They should treat it as such. Clayton writes in on Facebook with a little bit of a different take at Accessible Media Inc. No, they are our representatives. I do believe they need to critique policies, etc. So maybe that's where Clayton perhaps misunderstands the context of the question. We're not talking about rigorous debate and good faith debate going on inside the Houses of Parliament. I'm talking about people who are deliberately disruptive. They're not critiquing policy. They are just disrupting progress. Today's Daily Poll at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. It's all about uh, corporate social causes. You know, you have a cookie day or a muffin day at some kind of shop or some uh, organization talks about their great efforts in some kind of charitable endeavor. I want to know from you directly, are you more likely to support a company based on their corporate, social, and charitable causes? Yes or no at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Elizabeth Moeller, you're filling in for Alex Smythe here the next couple of weeks in the co-host chair. How does a corporation's uh, social positions and charitable causes impact where you spend your hard-earned money? Absolutely. It certainly does for me, although I'm careful to look beyond, you know, perhaps the odd charity day or drive. I know Tim Hortons had the donuts for Truth and Reconciliation Day and look a little deeper about what the company is doing. Myself, I try to shop at small businesses where I see that they are uh, paying employees equitably and treating customers well. Um, but I think for me, absolutely, I consider it, but I also do a little bit of a deeper dive to figure out, okay, what's really going on here? Is this about social and corporate responsibility or is this about a corporation looking good? Yeah, one of the big elements that will influence whether or not I might spend my hard-earned dollars based on a social cause of a corporation is have you created your own internal charity or foundation or are you partnering with people who are actually doing the work? I'm not going to name the two Canadian food retailers that have created their own subdi charitable subdivisions to sort of say, oh, we've created our own foundations internally and we're just sort mm -hmm. of making it up as we go along. I'm not going to name those two Canadian restaurants that engage in that activity, but I will shout out and name one that does the opposite, which says we are going to partner with an actual frontline organization. And that's what A&W does with 
with their work with Multiple Sclerosis Society yes. of Canada, where they Absolutely. do their special burger day and they get the good press for doing it, but the money they're making is going right to that charity, not to like another VP of another subsidiary of another charitable foundation, which ultimately ends up being a tax write-off for them. This is something where the money is going towards something, something tangible that's not an invention of their own mind. So I think that that's one of the important distinctions that I draw here. It's cynical, I yeah. know, it's deeply cynical, but I think that is a follow-up on what you said in regards to you've yeah. got to dig a little bit deeper. You got to well, yeah. I, no, no, it's cynical, but it's but cynical isn't by its nature a bad thing. No, for sure. Okay, all right, that's it. We're gonna leave it there for now. At Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Are you more likely to support a company based on their corporate, social, and charitable causes? At Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. You can also chime in via email, feedback at ami.ca, or give the show a call, 1-866-509-4545, 1-866-509-4545. Coming up next... The Ontario Green Belt development back and forth continues to be a news story that keeps on giving. Now municipalities are expressing their concern about the government backtracking on the development policy. Michelle McQuig of the Canadian Press will give you more insight on this story. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The development of Ontario's Green Belt continues to be a political mess. The Ford government did reverse on housing initiatives. That was after serious conflict of interest allegations surfaced. Now municipalities are expressing their own frustrations. Michelle McQuig is the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Michelle has more on this story. Hey, good morning, Michelle. Good morning, Dave. So, Michelle, what are municipalities asking for? What are they so ticked off about? Bottom line is literally that. They want some money. <laughs> this Greenbelt scandal for the Ontario government is, if, for those who are opposed to this administration, the gift that keeps on giving. Because this has been a scandal that has absolutely dominated this government's agenda for the past several months. We've had an RCMP investigation launched over it. We've had two scathing reports from various watchdogs in the province, including the Auditor General. And now what we have is a couple of municipalities who were the most affected by the, the swap, the land swaps that the government had intended to move forward with. And they're now coming to the government and saying, hey, we put a lot of time and resources into trying to make this happen for you guys when this was your plan. And we, we want now we need to be compensated for all the time we have because our taxpayers are on the hook. Yeah, time time is a flat circle these days, Michelle. It's kind of hard to sort of keep track of like True. the linear the linear points here. But there were months between the announcement of this policy and the opening of this land, and then the reversing of tracks after the Auditor General and the Ethics Commissioner both released those scathing reports they referred to. So there was quite a bit of time here where municipalities were being given their marching orders with, with the possibility of being penalized if they didn't march. Absolutely right. I, I don't have the timeline in front of me, although my colleagues, uh, Alison Jones and Liam Casey, who you should be following if you watch and do Ontario politics at all, um, 
they've been tracking this from the start and I don't have their timeline in front of me right now, but I think it's been going on for at least a year and there was mm-hmm. a lot that needed to be, to be going on there. And this is the kind of stuff that the municipalities want to be reimbursed for. Now I'll, I'll just for some background, it's only two at this moment that are asking for money. Uh, Pickering and Grimsby, which are both sort of Toronto, greater Toronto area municipalities for those outside of Ontario. Uh, Pickering is the one that wants the most back. They're saying they spent about $360,000 on things like environmental impact assessments, financial assessments, consulting fees, all the kind of things that you would be normally doing when you have land involved and and, and prospects of building housing on said land. Mm -hmm. Um, So these are the kind of costs that they want to be reimbursed for. Grimsby, too, is asking for money on similar kinds of grounds for similar sorts of issues, but to a smaller degree. Uh, They passed a motion on their town council, and they're asking for about $82,000 in the province back. Which, by the way, like at the end of the day, not huge swaths or sums of money. But again, it's money It's money out the pocket for these municipalities, which are oftentimes bossed around by the province. So any res- any response from the province so far? I know this sort of brambled up in the last couple of days. Yeah, no, uh, there has been no indication yet as to how they want to deal with those requests. So that we've been trying to get those answers without a whole lot of success so far. Uh, but you're right. These are things that the municipalities would have to do at the province's behest. And it's also worth pointing out too, that politically speaking from the mayor's perspective, it's probably a good look to be trying to push for provincial money on taxpayer grounds. Yeah. They're saying these are these are tax dollars that got spent. We need them back. Yeah, tax dollars that, that to a certain degree uh, got wasted. So yeah, definitely the, definitely they would definitely want those uh, <laughs> want those ones back. Okay, let's go from Ontario to something a little bit more regional here, although certainly it impacts the province of Ontario. St. Lawrence Seaway job action. Workers on the St. Lawrence Seaway have walked off the job. Negotiations between workers and employers hit an impasse over the weekend. Michelle, what's at issue in this job action? As per usual, it's wages is the main sticking point here. Uh, the the St. Lawrence Seaway Management Corporation is saying that the Unifor workers who who help move cargo through that she, that Seaway network uh, are already making well above inflationary weights. Their 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 salaries are currently about ten percent higher than inflation, and the union as is the pattern that we've talked about on this panel before and that we've seen several times with other labor negotiations this year are saying, no, we, we, we need a whole lot more than that. And the Seaway Management Corporation is pushing back and saying, you can't treat this like the automotive uh, sector where, where you have currently a, a number of other high profile negotiations on the go. Um, so that's really the sticking point. It's, it, it was pretty clear that the talks weren't moving forward that well. We got mm-hmm. a, we got a statement on Saturday morning from the, from the management corporation, from the employer, uh, saying that you know there had been very little progress. The union, I'm, I suppose, in a bid to be cute, was saying that they were a thousand nautical miles apart in, in, in negotiations. Um, so yeah, that that took effect at midnight on Saturday. And what's interesting here to me is the fact that the, the number of people work on strike is not actually that big. It's 360 people and it ranges from engineers to administrators. But these are the people that keep the seaway open and the impact economically. Yes. You said this was a regional story, but I would I would argue that it's not because if you look at the, the numbers last year, the, the, the amount of cargo that moved through the St. Lawrence Seaway was evaluated at $16.7 billion. That was last year. So this is is a major economic artery and it is now shut down. So even though it's it's... A limited impact in terms of numbers and you look at that 
you wouldn't necessarily think this is a major strike, but it has potential to be one for sure. Oh, definitely. I, th I think there's a broad conversation here because when you think the St. Lawrence Seaway, oh, that's the mouth of the St. Lawrence River. No, 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 no. It runs all the way to Lake Erie. So it runs through the oh, entire absolutely. river all the way down to Lake Erie through a major, as you say, shipping corridor, $16.7 billion of economic activity. And it makes me wonder about how this fits into the broader supply chain labor conversation, specifically in the context of the BC ports that has been a football that's getting kicked around and uh, and corporations asking the federal government to intervene. No kidding. Yes. The, 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 the usual suspects that you would expect in something like this, the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, um, all these sorts of groups are, are very much sounding the alarm because of the BC port strike. Uh, for those who don't remember that, uh, that was a, a, a much broader scale job action in, in the summer that shut down all the ports in British Columbia for, for most of the month of July, really, even though the strike was only in effect for 13 days. But the the fallout from that is significant. And all these business groups are warning that there's been so many disruptions between that port strike, this one now, still the COVID-related supply chain disruptions. Uh We've seen labor unrest in all kinds of places. There, there's so many reasons why supply chains are vulnerable right now. And they're saying that this new job action from the St. Lawrence Seaway is yet another yeah. complicating factor. And they're very much pushing for the federal government to get involved. Michelle, one more story here. Quebec University tuition, more reaction is coming in after Quebec's announced plan to double tuition for out-of-province students. This was a big topic on last Friday's news panel. Go check it out if you haven't listened already. Uh, now yes. with Dave Brown on your favourite podcasting platform, first hour of the show from Friday's show. But what's the update over the weekend in regards to the Quebec uh, tuition policy? Well, because we're always on the lookout for a good follow-up story in journalism, um, my colleague Thomas McDonald popped out to a Concordia uh, recruitment fair on Saturday just to get a feel for what the out-of-province students were thinking in light of this of this announcement and the, the plan that is looks like it's still going ahead. And uh, not too surprisingly, but it was very clear, this is definitely having an impact on people's decisions. There were lots of people at the fair still. They wanted to check it out. There's lots of interest in these English language universities in Quebec. Uh, but everyone Thomas spoke to indicated that it was going to be an insurmountable barrier either for them or for people they knew to attend these schools. Uh, there was one interview in which the, 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 the son is it was there with his father. And he's saying, you know, if, if the province moves ahead with this plan, we probably won't be able to proceed. And the dad chimes and says, no, 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 we will definitely not be able to proceed. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's... So, that makes the realities of this very, very clear. I mean, the financial impact when, when tuition rights are, are going to double, essentially, for these people um, from what they were expecting. Yeah, that is going to throw a huge curve in your budget. And it, it's very clear people are, are being extremely upfront about the fact that this policy will absolutely have a, a real effect on their decision making. Like, like you said, Michelle, unsurprising, but still notable to bring in some of this reaction and a, a good follow-up on a story that, uh, that kind of snuck into the headlines late, late, like like 10 days ago, snuck into the headlines and just sort of continues to bubble and bramble for a couple days here. Michelle, sure thank, does. Yeah, Michelle, thank you for this. Have a great day. Talk to you on Friday. Take care, Dave. Thanks very much. That's Michelle McQuig, weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Coming up after the break, the Canadian the Canadian Armed Forces put on a conference as part of their Soldier On program. Marco Pasqua was there, and we'll share some takeaways from the event. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI TV.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Soldier On is a program run by the Canadian Armed Forces. Soldier On offers opportunities and resources to service members who sustain injuries or illness. Marco Pasqua spoke at one of their conferences last week. Marco is the co-founder of Meaningful Access Consulting. Hey, good morning, Marco. Good morning, Dave. So, Marco, just starting very broadly here, what, what were some of your takeaways from your time with members of Soldier On? Well, this is an organization that is truly committed to, um, you know, giving opportunities and uh, and programming to ser a service individuals um, who've been part of the Canadian Armed Forces. And, you know, I knew surface level information about Soldier On prior to going and doing this presentation. But uh, after meeting the individuals in the room, um, I was just blown away with their commitment, um, you know, to our country, obviously, as well as. Um, just the idea of introducing physical literacy as a way of bridging the gap between, um, you know, abilities that an individual may have had before uh, and then having to adapt or adjust to those, uh, you know, changes to your body uh, if you, after you sustain an injury, whether it's physical or mental. And um, I'm just really, really blown away by, by the programming and by the individuals involved. Yeah, I had a chance to do a story with Soldier On probably about 10 years ago when I was working for AMI this week. It was either late 2013 or early 2014. And I remember just some of the folks I met there um, being tremendously committed to the cause because it's not just about rehabilitation. It's about rehabilitation with a purpose and a sense of community. Yes. And I, I think that really matters when you think about sort of the the trauma that goes along with developing an injury or an illness in the line of service. I, 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 the word bravery gets used a lot, probably too much in some of these conversations. But when you talk yeah. about people who are service members, these are the individuals who run towards the danger, where maybe our instinct in life is to get away from the danger. These are folks who are compelled, <laughs> like, yeah. like, like these are folks who are compelled to do it. They have to do it. And that comes with traumatic consequences. But it's it's about building community through rehabilitation yes. and, and helping people understand what their new life experience might be. No, 100%. And I think that, like, you know, you may understand or uh, on a little level what you're signing up for when you sign up to be part of the armed forces, but you don't really know until you're in it. And these individuals to continue to stay committed um, to that mission and that vision, um, it means it's a true honor for me to come in for a few moments and to share some of my insights as a member from the disability community, and maybe help to shed some light on the possibilities that can happen after an injury, even though I was born with my disability. And uh, and the things that they need to stay committed on and knowing that it's not for nothing. You know, they've they've helped over 10,000 service members um, through this program uh, get back on their feet, both metaphorically and, and literally. And uh, and I just think it's incredible to even have a small part of that. Marco, no need to give away all the goods here. But what were some of the key messages that you wanted to share with them? So I do disability awareness training through the Rick Hansen Foundation, and that was through this program that I was doing. I was doing a disability awareness uh, presentation, but Dave, you know I can't just do something cookie cutter. And so when I knew I was going in for Soldier On, I incorporated stories I don't tell to any other group. I talked about um, you know, what it was like for me as a former athlete, competitive athlete in disability sport, um, you know, transitioning and, and sort of looking at myself, you know, into COVID and saying, I'm not the athletic shape that I used to be, and really having to uh adapt to my body and get back into shape and what it was like to rediscover my love for physical literacy 
literacy and physical fitness and tie that into some of the stories that many of those members would be going through as well. So this was so much more than just your standard disability awareness training for me and understanding uh, individuals with disabilities, how to communicate with individuals with disabilities in order to support them with their programming. Mm. This was you know, about my personal vulnerabilities as well and getting super vulnerable with all those members so that they understand that it's okay to share your experiences and it's okay um, to have that build you up and the rest of your team up. And so this is why for me, it was so impactful. By the end of it, I had so many of the members saying, hey, listen, if you ever want to contribute to some of the work that we're doing, we're happy to have you. And I yeah. said, I would absolutely do that. And they said, be careful what you wish for. But <laughs> this is the group that in part is going to be helping to bring the Invictus Games um, you know, to, to Canada, to Vancouver in 2025. So, I mean, to plant a seed in their mind that I'm ab absolutely willing to dust off um, and uh, the re retirement of my competitive athletic self in order to contribute to any programs they have, um, I think they were fully on board with that. <laughs> you, you, know, you know, Marco, this, this might seem a little bit more abstract, but I think it relates to what you were just talking about. Being able to share your experience as someone who was born with a disability, but knows what it's like to go through changes related to disability in their life. I had a really similar opportunity recently to present at the uh, Fighting Blindness Canada's Young Leaders Summit. And a few of the conversations I was struck sharing my perspective as someone who was born legally blind to some folks who have acquired a disability or going through like a degradation in their vision over time, a degenerative condition. How do you think people who were born with disabilities can be more inclusive or more mindful mm -hmm. of welcoming people who acquire a disability because the experience is shared, but it's also different. It yeah, and it's going to be different for anyone who goes through any form of trauma or transition in their life, right? I mean, I once some, had someone in a workplace inappropriately say to me, once they discovered I had cerebral palsy, they said, oh, never mind, that's different than having something that you used to have and then losing it. You know, I, I, I thought you were somebody who was injured and so that you would have been able to relate to what it was like to have been able to walk completely oof, before. Oof, oof. And I was blown away by that, right? But however... Um, you know, comments like that only give me more fuel, uh, you know, in the fire um, to really highlight to individuals that it doesn't matter where, what point in your life you came in to join the disability community. That's just it. We're a community, right? And I think to to build someone up and to have them realize that there is life after injury, there is life after disability, and disability is doesn't have to be a death sentence with regards to how you see yourself and how you build yourself up. Um, and I think that that is the really important part here is that we're recognizing that no matter where you came into the disability community, you're still a contributing member of society. And who knows better than about being a contributing member of society than a, um, you know, service individual who's part of the Canadian Armed Forces, mm. who's been serving us uh, for the majority of their career. And now they have to learn to adjust to civilian life. That can't be easy for someone who is, uh, who's been there from, from the get-go. And you and I know all too well that a lot of the work that you have to do in disability training and disability advocacy and accessibility training is oftentimes starting with people from some ground zero of knowledge. So I yeah. think sometimes there's also, there has to be this notion of like patience and understanding mm -hmm. that if somebody is going through something traumatic, you have to let them do that. You can't just start pounding them with like a lot of this disability identity stuff right off the no. top. Like let them get through their experience and find their aha moment. Don't try and foist that upon them.
No, and that's exactly it, dude. I think like step outside of yourself, recognize that, you know, I've been, I've had my disability for 38 years and that's going to be completely different for somebody who's newly injured and totally just adjusting to the fact that maybe even six months ago, um, they were doing something completely different as a result of different abilities. And now uh, as a result of an injury, they're a different person and they're adjusting to that. So thank goodness for Soldier On and their programs um, and everything that they offer as a way to transition that is comfortable um, for so many of these members um, and does so in a way that utilizes humor. I mean, these are some of the funniest people I've ever met when I was in the room with them and they're cracking jokes with yeah. me back and forth. Um, and they're talking about, you know, doing their sports and getting involved and doing woodworking and various things like, uh, you know, we're sharing a lot of images right now. The children was so gracious to share their entire Flickr album with us um, to showcase um, some of the uh, service members really just being out there having fun and communities across the country. Yeah. Um, so I do want to encourage people to go to soldieron.ca and learn about what this group is doing because um, a lot of the times, yes, we understand these individuals as heroes, but it's the unsung heroes that are a part of this program that is helping to build them up, um, you know, to to get back out there and to be the incredible human beings that they are. Mm. Marco, got to be a little quick on this last thought, but you are no stranger to traveling. Uh, I would say you might be one of the most frequent flyers of the whole crew here on the uh, Now with <laughs> Dave Brown Extended Universe team. How was the uh, travel between Vancouver and Ottawa back and forth uh, going from point A to point Z? Yeah, so really quickly, what I wanted to talk about is I oftentimes will upgrade myself, I'll pay for the upgrade to travel into business class. And so, you know, I, I just wanted to state that the way in which I experience business class with regards to the comfortability, being closer to the front of the plane, being closer to the bathroom as somebody with a mobility challenge, I think is the way that most people should experience flight and travel. And I think it's atrocious that as time has gone on, we've had less and less from airline organizations and have to pay a steeper ticket for just your standard economy. Um, you know, not all, air, all airlines are created equal. I won't get into too many details, but I always have a much better experience with WestJet than I do with Air Canada. No, no offense, Air Canada, but, you know, and with regards to my chair security, with regards to my own security and just respecting myself as an individual with a disability. Uh, I, I say WestJet all the way, but although I know my friends in the East uh, don't necessarily travel with WestJet as much, um, but I will say that it was an incredible experience, very comfortable experience, but you shouldn't have to pay a premium in order to get that comfort. And yeah. so I, I just want to kind of make that statement to the airline industry. I know that they're struggling a lot right now, and so price hikes have been a thing, um, but also you wouldn't be struggling as much as if you take a step back and really look at um, how you train your staff, how your staff understands supporting people with disabilities and various equipments. Um, I think people would uh, rely and really be able to trust the industry a lot more. I like how you put that, taking a step back and zooming out and considering how to improve someone's flight experience as opposed to perpetually chipping away at it. What a, what a, novel, yeah. a novel concept, Marco. <laughs> thank you for this. Have a great day. Thanks for your perspective on all these stories. Uh, thanks, Dave, as always. That's Marco Pasqua, co-founder of Meaningful Access Consulting. You can follow Marco on Twitter at Marco underscore Pasqua. So Pasqua is P-A-S-Q-U-A, at Marco Pasqua. In 60 seconds, Elizabeth Moeller will have the weather story of the day. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Rob Westgate with your Morning Business Minute. A broad-based decline pulled North American stock markets lower on Friday, dragged down by losses in financial, telecom, and base metal sectors. 
Toronto's S&P TSX losing 233 points, closing at 19,116. In New York, the Dow Jones Industrial Average lost 287 points, down to 33,127, while the Nasdaq fell 202 points to 12,984. Asian markets have started the week lower, with Japan's Nikkei finishing down 260 points, at 31,000. The head of Via Rail is calling on Ottawa to come up with a passenger bill of rights for rail services. Meantime, experts say many Canadian homeowners are facing the tough decision on whether to renew or refinance their mortgages, and the Canadian Agri-Food Policy Institute is calling for a national plan to sustainably manage water use for the agri-food sector. And the loonie is trading at 72.86 cents US. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Rob Westgate. Thank you very much, Rob. Let's head over to Elizabeth Moeller for the weather story of the day. So, Elizabeth, there was frost on the ground walking into work today in southern Ontario. It was, Dave. After a chilly, chilly weekend, southern Ontarians are in for a little bit of a seasonal whiplash as temperatures warm up again to round out the month. So southern Ontario is going to face a seasonal whiplash as temperatures go from frosty to toasty. Tuesday, October 3rd, believe it or not, was the last mainly sunny day for all of Ontario. And since then, we've been dodging countless systems and belts of cloud. But October is typically the month where we really see the increase in hours of cloud coverage across Southern Ontario. But a surprising trend is taking place. After today, our first mainly sunny day in nearly three weeks, that's a long time, the temperatures will reverse course from the typical seasonal decline, and we're going to be experiencing some unusually warm temperatures for the final week of October leading up to Halloween. That'll be nice. Highs will average around 12 degrees for the greater Toronto area, and they'll fall to 10 degrees as you work your way to, uh, towards Ottawa, and even lower as you work your way to North Bay, where it's only only going to be seven degrees. The overnight lows will also be exceptionally warm for this time of year. Elizabeth, thank you very much for this. Talk You're to you welcome. in a couple of minutes with the entertainment report. Speaking of entertainment, coming up next, Haunted Mansion is a horror comedy flick that you can find on Disney Plus, and you can find Amy Amanti giving it a review after the break. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI TV. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. There's a film for you to get into the spirit of the season on Disney+. Plus. It's called Haunted Mansion. It's a horror comedy movie. The film has a star-studded cast. You got Lakeith Stanfield, Danny DeVito, Jamie Lee Curtis. You're going to hear Amy Amanti's thoughts on the film in just a moment. But first, here's a clip from the movie's trailer. A woman opens a door. A man starts to enter. Wait! I should warn you, before you step inside the house, this could change the course of your entire life. I'm not afraid of a couple ghosts. He enters the cluttered mansion. <laughs> you say that now. Exploring, he wipes dust from a mirror. 
He wipes more. Behind him, an undead bride flings an axe. He dodges. This mansion is unhinged. Ghosts duel with pistols. These ghosts definitely don't want to leave. Death lurks around every corner. A young boy's flashlight dies. People gather around a table. God, give us a break. There's so many bad people in the world. Haunt them. Amen. A caped man holds a lantern. I do like surprises. Is anybody else seeing this? I hope you do, too. It contains a glowing skull. We're in a fight, whether we like it or not. Or else we're stuck here for eternity. A hallway twists. Entertainment critic Amy Amanti has thoughts on Haunted Mansion. Hey, good morning, Amy. Good morning, Dave. So, Amy, Haunted Mansion is a movie that's adopted or adapted from a ride at Disney World. Of course, Disney's played with that before. Pirates of the Caribbean ended up being a very successful movie for them, adapted from one of their rides. What do you make of the concept of turning rides into movies? You know, I think... Um, uh... <laughs> That's a difficult one for me. You know, we always toy around with this idea that there are a limited number of plot lines in the universe, right? Um, so I think, you know, Disney has to, they're, they're pulling at straws, right? Like there's a limited number of plot lines. So the rides are successful for them. Where else are you going to pull plot lines, plot lines from? So I think, you know, I mean, for me, it's better than trying to make these, uh, <laughs> what we've talked about before, these live action films from their original uh, cartoons, their animated cartoons. I'd rather than pull from the idea of successful <laughs> rides in their amusement parks than reinvent animated films. Or, so or, I'm okay with it. Or, or, you know, as a billion dollar corporation, like maybe just go write some original stories, you know, like, like there's, there's that too. Well, you know, it would be nice if you could pay some uh, original storytellers to write some original <laughs> stories. What a marvel idea that would be. But, uh, you know, kind of like what the whole thing was built around in the first place. Uh, writing, yeah, writing, writing original movies with, a, with you know, I mean, obviously they were, they were oftentimes borrowing ex existing fairy tales and changing them a little bit, existing stories. Well, this is the thing. There's only so many original plot lines, right? Yeah. But, uh, but you're right. It would be nice to see. We, you know what, Dave, to be honest with you, we haven't seen a lot of original air quotes original storytelling in a very long time yeah that's i will, I will grant you that yeah. one okay let's talk genre here amy you've hit a right. couple horror movies recently including i think it was a couple weeks ago something that was billed as horror comedy that you felt uh, fell a little bit flat overall how would you evaluate the reputation of the genre of horror comedy i think that's a really hard niche to fill honestly um i'm not sure that this one fits the horror genre comedy either um i don't know how else you would call this other than like literally disney has its own genre so if you want to call i mean it is a disney film so i don't know that you could call it horror comedy genre in and of itself yeah. is it horror not really is it comedy not really oh no <laughs> uh, it's classic disney right and so um, yeah, there's a little bit of moments in both of these things. There were a couple of moments where I thought, oh my gosh, this is a little scary. Is it actually, am I actually watching a Disney movie? There are a couple of moments where I thought this is really hokey, but is that actually comedy? Not really. Um, so it's got its own kind of genre and it doesn't really fit for me into the the horror, uh, the yeah. horror comedy genre. I mean, I mean, okay. So Dave, for you, what would be a classic horror comedy 
film. I mean, I would come to the Scary Movie franchise and say that was probably yes. the one that did it the best, but that was really outright parody spoof comedy. It yes. was not meant to be funny at all. I think you and I, well, sorry, it wasn't meant to be scary at all. It was meant to deliberately yeah. play on a lot of like the big horror movies of the day. I, yeah. would, I would suggest to you that maybe if you really were talking about a horror movie that had true scares but was also meant to be funny, that's probably... Oh, uh, uh, it's probably Scream. Like, I would say the Scream series probably Scream. lands there. Yep. But, like, uh, again, I wouldn't say that was, like, ha-ha, funny. Uh, and you talked about this the last time this genre came up. It's that by its nature, a horror film is going to make you laugh because being scared and giggling sometimes go hand in hand. You have to, you have, to have those moments that break the tension, but that doesn't make it a comedic film, right? When yeah. I think of horror comedies, I kind of think of like Shaun of the Dead, yes. which would be one of my favorite kind of horror comedy melds, um, or What We Do in the Shadows, which you're right, is a bit more of a parody horror, right? Um, a horror comedy for me is less about the horror and more about the comedy. Um, but, you know, when you think about a Disney horror comedy, you know, it's it's uh, Disney just has its own genre. You know, it's a Disney film when you're seeing a Disney film. Yeah. Right? Pirates of the Caribbean was very much like that. You know, it didn't really fit its own genre. It was a Disney film and you knew it when you watched it. It has its own hallmark for all, you know, for all intents and purposes. Yeah, it's almost like it's almost like um, like Disney has their own brand of sort of like spooky movies, right? Yeah. Where it's like it's not it's not meant to be scary. It's not meant to be horror. You think about horror, you think about like um, you know, uh, like somebody getting stabbed with a big knife, or like uh, or yeah, like some. Yeah, you think about your Halloweens and your Freddy Kruegers and your Jason Takes Manhattans and yeah, all of those. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, Jason yeah. Takes Manhattan. I love that. I love yeah. that edition Friday of Friday the Thirteenth. Yeah. Ah, yeah. oh, great one. Great one. Amazing. Okay. So I read a couple of those cast members off the top. I'm a big mm -hmm. fan of Lakeith Stanfield. Like, I think he's a phenomenal actor. Uh, Danny yep. DeVito, who's been making me laugh for years now on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Jamie Lee Curtis having a nice little resurgence late in her career. Like, love to see that, too. <laughs> so, like, on paper, I'm really kind of intrigued by the cast, but that mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily mean the performances were excellent. What was your evaluation of these performances and the way the cast stacked up here? Well, I would say that um, the performances match the Disney genre. Um, so take that with what you what that's, you will. It's very diplomatic. Right? It's very diplomatic. So, you know, you can compare some of these folks to some of the great works that they have done in their careers, right? Um, now, if you wanted to say something like Johnny Depp in Pirates of the Caribbean in a Disney genre, that was an excellent role for Johnny Depp. Yes. But there were no excellent roles here for either of these excellent performers right none of these roles i mean you could look at any of these roles and say you know uh, any other actor could play any of these other roles so none of these roles are going to be career carving roles for any of these actors unfortunately so sometimes you need a role that's that's really a character role for an actor to be a standout performance None of these roles were created in that kind of way. Um, so, you know, you, you get a, a, a performance that is as great as the actor can do, but nothing that you go, wow, this is an, uh, an outstanding performance. So, you know, they're good actors. You're going to have solid performances. But I would say that, like, you know, I could replace any of these actors with any, any other great performer. 
Right. So it's yeah. solid, but not, nothing that I would say, wow, I could I would never see anybody else playing that role ever. Yeah, yeah. So like good 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 but not great. Or like you know, yeah. adequate adequate and passable, which is fine. Like yeah. hey, listen, especially in the world of acting, you know this, you can't always uh, win an Oscar. You might win one in your whole career if you're lucky. If you're one if of the if lucky. you're one of the best in the world, you might win one in your whole career. So Which so is I'm, why they say it's a, an honor just to be nominated. It's an honor just to be nominated. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Amy, what surprised you about Haunted Mansion? Um, I think what surprised me about it was that there were these these few select moments where I thought they were a little scarier than they needed to be for a Disney film. And I thought, okay, Disney's trying to do something here where they are um, pushing the boundaries a little bit of of what they are used to doing. So maybe they're trying to reach out to an audience that isn't your typical Disney audience. Because um, there was a moment, there are a couple of moments there that I was like, oh, really, Disney? What, really? Um, in my, you know, watching it late at night in my own bed, thinking I could hit play on a Disney haunted, like whatever, right? It's Disney. Um, and actually what I thought was even more interesting about that, it was my own brother who was like, I watched Disney Haunted Mansion. And I thought, what did you think of it? Because my brother's not really a, like, he's not a Disney, you know, that's what he wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't typically hit play on that. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, if my brother's watching a Disney movie, well, maybe I'll watch a Disney, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that's not a classic sort of homage or I want to be nostalgic about a Disney thing because I'll watch those all day long. Um, so I was like, okay, I'll do this. And then, so there were these moments and I thought, okay, they're, they're now, now here's my brother who's just about 40, who's like your sort of typical bro um, hitting play on Haunted Mansion, um, which is a whole different audience for them. And it made me kind of think about who the new audience of Disney might be. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, this this film is rated PG-13. So like, so they're yeah. definitely not just saying, oh, here's some G-rated movie for the kids. Like they're saying this uh. could skew a smidge older if you had to. Uh, Amy, I was really struck during the trailer clip that was described by Mark Phoenix, how much audio description Mark Phoenix had to do and how fast that was moving and how much was happening on screen. Now, Mark didn't do the DV for the whole film. That was at Disney no. on their own front. How yeah. did they fare with their audio description? So there's a couple of things that I think were kind of a miss for this particular film. One is, yes, you know, there's some some ghouls and some gobs here that that were kind of a miss in terms of, you know, how spectacular they were from a visual perspective that we are missing out as, as, a, as a blind low vision audience. Um, that could have increased a little bit of the fear factor from a, a non-visual perspective. So we missed out on that. The other thing we missed out on was the fact that Almost never, from a from a, a non-visual perspective, were we told where this movie was taking place. And so really once subtly we were mentioned that this was New Orleans. But typically in a movie, the audio description will say, so for example, if you're passing the Eiffel Tower in the background, they will tell you the Eiffel Tower is there. They don't have to say, we're in France and we're at the Eiffel Tower, right? So this is New Orleans, this is French Quarter, this is all, you know, you're in shot, uh, what they call shotgun row houses, you know, this is, um, uh, this is the setting. And so when you know that you're in this setting, you know that you're talking about this type of, um, so like the movie starts with talking about uh, haunted tours that you're that you're being yeah. taken on. Which New Orleans, which, 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 yeah, which New Orleans is famous for because of like exactly. the voodoo culture and ghosts and exactly. all this stuff. Yeah. 
So you're missing out on 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 this kind of historical kind of the, the the tour that the sighted audience is getting, but the blind audience is not getting. And there is plenty of time for this kind of description to be peppered into there. And we're totally missing out on that, which I thought was a huge downfall of, in terms of letting us out on the world that we're in. And then, Dave, I'm getting on my soapbox again here, but you'll understand why with the with the diversity description of the audio description because there's a lot of black history here that we were totally let out on in terms of the character diversity here um but that's really important because it new is. orleans is a full of black cultural history that we were not let in on in terms of which characters were which and 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 how they related to this kind of history and so i as a as a you know non-visual member i felt kind of left out on all of those pieces amy got to be quick on yeah. this one would you recommend haunted mansion i still say that if you're as a family if you're looking for something that is family oriented and you want to watch something together this is a great sort of halloween pick so yes i would say family units go ahead and hit play on this one awesome thank you very much amy Thank you, Dave. That's entertainment critic Amy Amanti with the review of Haunted Mansion. You can find the film on Disney Plus, and it's rated PG-13. Coming up in one minute, Elizabeth Moeller has a story about one of my favorite entertainers. It's Dolly Parton. That's part of the entertainment report. But first, AI is being used by phone scammers. Mike Dubusky tells you how in Tech Trends. Scammers are now using AI to mimic voices, says Dan Woods of cybersecurity firm F5. They called, they synthesized the voice of a loved one saying something like, I've been in a car accident and I need money uh, or I'm in the hospital or I've been arrested. It's always going to be, I need money. He says identifying a fake in the heat of the moment can be difficult. Think about the stress that you're, you're under when you think your loved one is calling you and telling you about uh, being in an accident. Accident. Suddenly, that stress causes you to make um, judgments you wouldn't ordinarily make. The best advice then, keep a cool head. Calm analysis of the situation would, would reveal that what they're being asked to do is unreasonable. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubosky, ABC News. Thank you very much, Mike. Elizabeth Moeller in entertainment today. Dolly Parton is making some waves. She sure is. Dolly Parton has released a cover of the song Wrecking Ball with Miley Cyrus. And this is in the lead up to her forthcoming album. And that is going to be released on November the 17th. And it's interesting, Dolly Parton's 77, but she's preparing to release this album and it's a full length record. And she's really kind of exploring a new sound. The nine to five country singer Chart Topper is exploring a new sound with rock. Yeah, so let's just get a little bit of a taste here and a moose-bouche of what Dolly Parton's trying here with this cover of a Wrecking Ball, of course, a massive pop song for her uh, goddaughter, Miley Cyrus, a couple of yes. years ago on the uh, pop and rock music charts. So let's give this one a roll. I came in like a wrecking ball So, Elizabeth, this has been stuck in my head all day because I Me listened to too. this this morning when I got up, and I love the Miley Cyrus version of this song, and I'm a big fan of Dolly Parton. Wasn't crazy about the way Dolly's voice worked here on the verses, but the choruses on this were absolutely killer. You just heard a little bit of the chorus. What are you thinking of the single besides it being stuck in your head? 
well, besides being stuck in my head and that we share a love of Dolly Parton, I have to say, I liked that it stuck to the original song. Sometimes when people do remixes or they do a cover, there's too much diversion from the original. And I don't like that. It really, for me, stayed true to the original and those alto, alto harmonies in the chorus that Dolly engaged in, I thought were really powerful. Yeah, I love that uh, Dolly and Miley have basically been collaborating together and giving each other a lot of space uh, to yeah. work with each other's music over the years. Miley Cyrus very famously does covers of Jolene, Dolly Parton's Jolene, one of my absolute favorite songs of all time. And if you go onto your YouTube machine and you look for Miley Cyrus backyard session uh, Jolene, it is probably one of the most beautiful renditions of a song you'll ever hear, let alone cover of that song I just mean rendition of a song ever like that is the that is the moment where I truly fell in love with Miley Cyrus and continue to be a massive fan of Dolly Parton not just for her music career Elizabeth but going back to what you and I talked about at the top of the show as part of the daily yep. poll in terms of a social conscience Dolly Parton yes. the work she does in terms of helping with child literacy by sending yep. free books to children all over America but also her theme park uh, Dollywood she pays the university and college tuition of her employees at Dollywood. Like, how can you not like that? How can you not support a human like this? And just her mentorship to other singers, not just her goddaughter, but the work that she's done to mentor younger singers that are coming up in the country sphere behind her and just how charitable she's been with her time and very humble too. She was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but you know, there was several several nominations where she she was very humble and said, No, I'm I'm not gonna take that at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Love Dolly. Stellar person. Love Dolly. Yeah. Uh, Elizabeth, thank you for this. Talk to you in the second hour of the show. Thank you, Dave. That's Elizabeth Moeller with the Entertainment Report coming up after the break. A couple of stories in the regional news updates, including some confusion over precisely what BC is doing to protect their old growth forests. That and so much more on Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. It's Monday, October the 23rd, 2023. Coming up in the second hour of the show, Google announced a whole bunch of accessibility updates across its platform. Stephen Scott will break down the details. And the Tripping on Air podcast has a new season. Host Ardra Shepard will tell you all about it. But the hour begins with the regional news updates. There is some confusion about BC's old growth forest logging deferrals. John Kennedy has the story. Ecologist Karen Price served on a panel that identified high-priority old-growth forests and recommended areas that be set aside from logging while government and First Nations work on longer-term management plans. But Price says most of the provincial data is based on aerial images that drop in accuracy for forests older than 200 years, putting old-growth trees at risk of permanent loss. A statement from the Forests Ministry says BC is improving its data and using better technology to help governments, First Nations, and forests companies make better decisions. John Kennedy, The Canadian Press. And over to Quebec, Montreal is one step closer to creating a commemorative park for 6,000 Irish immigrants buried in unmarked graves in an industrial pocket of the city. Lisa Laporte takes a closer look. 
The Montreal Irish Memorial Park Foundation this week became the new owner of the site where a three-meter-tall solitary monument known as the Black Rock marks the location of Canada's largest mass grave. The site, previously the property of the Anglican Diocese of Montreal, consists of a small patch of greenery in the median of a busy street near the base of the Victoria Bridge. The foundation says the land donation by the diocese was key to its goal of transforming the area into a park honoring the thousands of Irish people who died of typhus in 1847 while fleeing Ireland's Great Famine. Lisa Laporte, the Canadian Press. And finally, in the Atlantic provinces, Newfoundland and Labrador Health Services kicks off its Innovation Summit today. The week-long event focuses on work being done to improve the lives of patients. The summit is taking place at the Health Innovation Acceleration Centre in St. John's. The province's Minister of Industry, Energy and Technology, Andrew Parsons, is scheduled to speak at the event this afternoon. And one more story out of the Atlantic provinces. New Brunswick's Huntsman Marine Science Centre is looking for citizen scientists to help catalogue seal life in the Bay of Fundy. The centre is asking St. Andrew's residents to take a picture if they notice a seal and then log it on the social media platform iNaturalist. Claire Goodwin is a research scientist at the Huntsman. She says these posts can be sent to the centre where researchers will try to identify the species. Goodwin says more unusual and invasive species are moving into the bay and data found by citizen scientists can help determine how the biosphere is changing. That's your look at the regional news. Here comes Brock Richardson to chat about a busy weekend in sports. Brock, I feel like we could have started every Monday morning the last three weeks with this, talking about uh, the NFL and recapping Sunday's action. What's wrong with your Buffalo Bills? A, like a humiliating loss to New England yesterday in the afternoon. I don't know. I keep seeing all these things that say things like, oh, Buffalo, when they get into the playoffs, it's all that matters. Well, they got to get there first because, I mean, yesterday was an unbelievable, just uh, just bad display of defense. Like, just everything was awful. They gave up that, uh, you know, last under two minutes drive into the end zone when they really, the most that they should have given up was a, a field goal. It was just awful. And then classic Bill Belichick says uh, in his press conference, who's the coach for the New England Patriots, of course, he says he was asked, uh, how does this last minute drive uh, help your team? And his response was, I don't know. And he <laughs> moved on. Like, so Bill Belichick, you know, he, and then he was asked, you got your uh, 300th win, career win. Uh, how does that make you feel? Uh, I don't know. I'm not really focused on that right now. I'm on to the next game. We'll, we'll deal with that later. That's the only part of the game that I love was the post game and classic Bill Belichick. Other than that, it was just terrible. You know, uh, the Bills, you know, Bill Belichick, the coach of the Patriots is closer to most career regular season losses than he is to most career regular season wins. Right. Like it's, uh, yeah, it's, I don't know. I know that I believe Buffalo will make it into the playoffs, but my goodness, it's not good. And I know there's injuries on the defensive side of the ball. I get it. But man, your offense should be able to carry you through, but not yesterday. 
It was brutal. It's three weeks in a row. They didn't show up till the fourth quarter of the game. Literally three weeks in a row, they haven't shown up till the fourth quarter of the game. You can get away. You can maybe get away with that with uh, bad teams like the New York Giants. They thought they could get away with that with a bad team like the New England Patriots. But that's a uh, bad, bad habit that Buffalo's getting into. And uh, it's too bad because they're uh, they're a good team when they're humming. But they haven't hummed for about a month now. Uh, and go ahead. And by the way, they also have to start earlier this week because they play the Tampa Bay Buccaneers on Thursday. So oh. somebody better tell them today that they start playing on Thursday, not Sunday, because a... they could re- really show up late if they uh, don't uh, don't don't recognize their schedule this week. That's a good. So. That's a, that's a good Thursday game. That's a good. Th- I might I might stay up for that one. That's a good Thursday night game. I like that one. I definitely won't go to bed like halftime like I did during the Miami <laughs> Dolphins Philadelphia Eagles game with the Eagles. Maybe not. <laughs> pounding the Dolphins, but 31-17 final score there in the Sunday night primetime game. It was not as close as the final score made it look. Miami's offense looked anemic the entire game against Philadelphia's stout, speedy defense that is uh, built around speed and power on the interior of the defensive line. So rookie Javon Carter, Jalen Carter, was absolutely destroying the Dolphins on one side, and then second-year player Jordan Davis was unstoppable on the other side. The, the Philadelphia Eagles have definitely figured out where to invest their resources, and it's speed and size on defense uh what a novel concept yeah i mean i also would say to you that the philadelphia eagles came uh really angry and upset because they lost last week to the the jets and so i think you know that was part of what you saw you just saw a complete game by the philadelphia eagles it's something that as a bills fan i was like well at least miami didn't win and you know take a step more ahead of us but yeah no it was not a good game from uh, anybody really on the the Dolphins side, particularly in the second half. It just when it rained, it poured, and and you could see that. But Philadelphia was ready, willing, and able to pounce on the Miami Dolphins last night for you, sure. You know what my big soup, my big takeaway here is uh, now that we're this far into the NFL season, there's no such thing as a perfect football team. Every team is going to have some sort of flaw, but the Philadelphia Eagles are probably as close as you get to a complete football team in terms of power on the offensive and defensive line, the ability to get any fourth down they want to if they're within two yards of the first down line. Four for four converting fourth downs last night, including a couple key ones late in the game in the fourth quarter. So that Eagles team, no such thing as a perfect football team here in the NFL, but I would say the Eagles are about as close as it gets if you look and, at uh, talent across the board. And they they really perfect that talent of, you know, pushing the quarterback, Jalen Hurts, in when they're close to the end zone. They're good at those quarterback sneaks where they push the quarterback in. So they're really good. They they, they can't hurt you in any way, shape, or form. It's, yeah. it's quite something to watch. The tush push or the brotherly shove. Uh, there's some <laughs> different branding statements going on around that one. I, I think the brotherly shove makes a lot of sense. You know, Philadelphia, city of brotherly love, it's the brotherly shove. And a lot of other teams have tried to do it, and it's not working. Like, like Philadelphia <laughs> has figured this out in a way that other teams have tried to replicate, and it's not working. That's how the New York Giants quarterback, Daniel Jones, got hurt. They tried to do the brotherly shove and they hurt their own quarterbacks. So, you know, that's uh, that, that tells you they've definitely perfected something. Brock, switching over to the Major League Baseball playoffs here. Uh, Got to be quick. Another doubleheader today, including a Game 7 in the uh, Texas Rangers-Houston Astros series. A home game. A home team has yet to win a home game in this series. 
Yeah, and if you had told me that, you know, starting this series, I'd have said to you, yeah, right, uh, this is not going to be the case, but it is. And I, my prediction is that the home team gets one done uh, today as they have uh, Christian Javier going on the bump for the Houston Astros. I really think today we break that trend uh, of doing it. And I would say that the Diamondbacks, if we're going to be quick, I would say that their season is probably going to be over, but I could be wrong at that one tonight, but we'll see. That's uh, game five, uh, game six against the Philadelphia Phillies in Philadelphia, although uh, pretty much every game in that series has been killer. So uh, looking forward to a baseball doubleheader tonight on Sportsnet. Brock, thank you for this. Have a nice day. You as well. That is Brock Richardson coming up after the break. Google has announced a whole bunch of accessibility updates across its series of products. Stephen Scott will break down the details. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Google announced a series of accessibility updates. Everything from search to the camera have added some accessibility features. Stephen Scott can break it all down. Stephen is the co-host of Double Tap on AMI-audio. Hello, Stephen. Good morning, Dave. How are you? Stephen, I'm good. There's actually a lot to dive into here, beginning with the searches side of the equation, you know, kind of where Google broke into the whole operation. What has Google done to update the search functions? Well, this is the great thing about what Google does. Uh, you know, as you know, I'm an Apple guy, so you know, I'm, I had to research this topic <laughs> a little bit because uh, it's unusual for me to delve into the world of Android and Google. But you know, we all use Google every day, right? Especially as you say, when it comes to search. In fact, it's become the word, isn't it, that we use, we attribute to search. And one thing that's cool, and one thing they've been working on over a period of time is developing and improving the information about the search. So let's say, for example, you wanted to search for a cafe that was wheelchair accessible. Well, you now can. In this update, that is one area where, you know, you can find out information about a restaurant or a cafe or a store and find out if it is accessible to you as someone, say, in a wheelchair or someone who perhaps likes to go to an autism-friendly hour of mm -hmm, a store opening mm -hmm. to make the, you know, the experience better for you with, with autism. But in addition to that, the other key point here is that they're also promoting disability-friendly businesses and disability-owned businesses yeah. as well. So if you own a business and you're disabled, you can highlight that too. And of course, we as a community can support that. What else are they doing inside the search function? Well, there's lots going on in search, and, and the key thing about search is it's a forever evolving thing. Of course, one of the key areas is artificial intelligence and building what is, is their version of the language model, the large language model we they use called BARD. And what BARD is, is essentially that model which allows you to get better and more intricate search results. And this kind of capability of being able to search for specific information about a product or a, a theme of a, a restaurant or whatever, but in addition to that, find out if it's accessible to you. I think is really, really important. Mm. And of course, updates, uh, you know, and continues the work 
on what are called existing business attributes. This is what Google classifies this as. And you can find Asian-owned, Black-owned, Latino-owned, uh, veteran-owned, woman-owned businesses as well. So wow. you can find exactly what you want to know about that organization and really filter that search down in a way you couldn't before. So that's the bread and butter, the search function of Google. The whole thing, the whole inception point was being a search engine, and you see where they're making mm -hmm. those improvements. But they're more than just bread and butter. Google is a whole buffet of options, including being a player in the smart home space. They're making some changes to what they're doing with the routine or the assistant routine functions. So how are they evolving that to maybe be more disability inclusive? Well, look, I don't know about you, Dave, but I don't tend to get into this whole world of routines. I know it's no, there. No, I don't. Apple, I don't, it's called. I don't yeah. either, yeah. I, it's confusing, right? And I think a lot of people, they tend to avoid it because unless, I mean, for example, my Amazon Echo will sometimes say to me when I ask it to turn the lights on, it will say, hey, would you like me to turn these lights on and off at sunrise and sunset? And I think... Actually, yeah, that's cool. And I just say yes, and it goes off and does it. And I think that's the way we want it to work. Uh, but, of course, lots of people like to delve in and change their settings and, and make multiple things happen. So when I walk in the front door, a sensor will turn on a light. Maybe it'll turn on the TV. Maybe it'll start up the smart kettle, you know, or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And that's all cool, but you have to build that routine. That is what a routine is. You build all this up. But up until now, I feel personally that, it's been a little bit challenging trying to work out how to do this. And Google are trying to improve it through what they're calling action blocks. This is really simply exactly as you would imagine, almost like a Lego style approach to building up these assistant routines, right? So you have all your different blocks, you have a light, you have a sensor, you have a kettle, and you just put them all into this, you know, when this happens, this happens. And I think they're trying to make it easier because I think what these companies have realized, Apple as well with shortcuts, is that whilst these are great functionalities and they open up so much capability, a lot of people don't even know where to start. And to be honest, it feels even today, for even for me, it feels like I'm living, I have yeah. to go off and get a degree to be able to understand how this works. So hopefully this will make it uh, better. Yeah, that's it. For someone like you, who's very much a tech head, if you find the establishment of creating routines to be difficult, yeah, I can see how maybe someone like me, who is a little more tech illiterate, would really be reluctant to do it. And as you, but point I don't out, think you are. No, I don't think you are illiterate, though. I think that's the point. I don't think we are. I think it's it's that I don't think the way this is presented makes sense. So I think that they have to come up with a better way of laying this out, simplifying it, so we can all benefit from yeah, it. I, yeah. I really, I think it's it's more to do with that. Also, I really think it, if you were to talk about the true value of an assistant routine being established, you've got to have the smart house that's almost completely integrated. I'm not saying maybe like you can't have a couple outliers, but pretty much your lock, your lights, your appliances, your alarm clock, like your television, everything sort of needs to be in that singularity of a universe to really talk about the value of that. Like you've really got to have the full smart home. If you've only sort of, if you're only sort of dabbling in the smart home, having having assistant routines doesn't strike me as is as as useful. Sorry, I'm I'm bad at talking English.
<laughs> not at all. No, I, I have to listen. I'm Scottish. I know all about that. <laughs> um, but look, I um, I feel when it comes to this kind of technology, we're not quite there yet. I think it's still not quite as simple. I think what we want to get to, and I know companies like Amazon are really pushing this, and they've pushed this this year. They want to try and develop a system where you plug in, say, a smart plug. You buy a smart plug. You plug it into the wall, and automatically a device like an Amazon Echo will pick up on the fact you've plugged this new device in, and it says, hey, I've just found this uh, it's a smart plug what do you want to call it and you say well I want to call it the fan because I'm going to plug a fan into it right right um, okay cool and that's it and then you can then say turn on and off the fan and that's the beginning of a smart home all the action blocks does is just build that into a routine that allows multiple devices to be controlled at once right and I think once you've got the understanding of the basics of this and I don't think it's up to us to figure this out I think the companies should do a better job of explaining it through their applications and making this technology easier to understand. It's been the realm of geeks for too long. Yeah. <laughs> and they could sell it to so many more people if they, if they just thought a bit wider. Yeah, not, not, not to dwell here, but Stephen, I can definitely see the use case from an accessibility point of view that is, I've used my smart lock, I've opened the smart lock, please turn on, you know, three or four of the hallway lights and please, you know, turn on the, like you said, the smart kettle in, in the kitchen and maybe the TV in the living room. But yeah. I, I, like, I, I see I see the merits, but sometimes that's not my, I don't do the same thing every time I walk in the front door other than make mm -hmm. sure my keys are in my pocket because that's kind of an important one because I don't, I don't want to lose my keys. But yeah, like, like I, I, I can see the value, but I also don't necessarily see extreme value to reinvest a bunch of my money to smarten up my house. Well, I, I take that point, and, and I do, and I think you know it's interesting because I am, a, as you know, a bit of a tech head. I love tech, and I love playing with it. But you know, very simply, in my house, I have a routine where when my wife or I come into the front front of the house, the the lights come on, and it's a very simple thing. But you know, if you're blind or you're low vision. When you walk into the house, the last thing you want to do is fall over something or yeah. scrambling around trying <laughs> to find a light switch. You know, ideally, you just want the lights to come on. And that's really as far as it goes in, in my smart home. But that is really empowering for us. Yeah. It makes a big difference. It means in the dark nights, as they're about to start coming in, you know, you start, it's getting darker in the evening. You come into the house at night. You just want the, the lights to come on. It's a security thing as well. If you're coming down the stairs in a, of an evening, the lights come on. It's a safety thing, right? So... You know, I think that if that's all we do with it and it helps us, that's it. I think yeah. the problem is, like you're identifying, there's often this desire to push us to do more. And really, let's be honest about it, Dave, it's just so that they can sell more stuff. Right? <laughs> yeah. That's really what it's all about. <laughs> selling more hardware, selling more services. Stephen, one yeah. more here. I've sort of made this joke here. The bread and butter, butter of Google is their searching, and then they've really emerged nicely into the smart home space. They've also really become a great player in the cell phone game, specifically mm -hmm. driven by their camera, their Pixel line of cameras. So what are they doing in terms of an update to the Google cameras on phones? Do you know something? I've been an iPhone guy for a long time, and I get jealous of uh, the stuff that uh, you Android people have. Um, and I've got to say, this particular feature stands out for me. This is called Lens in Maps. It's a new feature. It was formerly called Search with Live View. What it means is you can hold up your camera on your device, and you will get information visually on the screen about 
services, about companies, about whatever it is that you're standing in front of. So let's say you're standing in front of a store and you point the camera at the store. It will tell you what the store is. It might tell you information about the store. You know, a restaurant's a good example of this. What kind of food do they sell? Yeah. What kind of stuff? And I've used this myself. You know, you're walking around as I was. I was in Amsterdam a couple of weeks ago. I'm walking around the airport looking for somewhere to eat. I've got no idea what half these restaurants sell. They're just names, right? It's just yeah. the name of a restaurant. So being able to dig into that is really cool. Uh, up until now, unfortunately, Lens and Maps, as it's now known, was not accessible to TalkBack users, the uh, screen reader that's on those Android smartphones. But this new feature is, and it uses AI, as does everything else these days, and augmented reality <laughs> to basically use that phone camera to orientate people. So not only can you search for a place and you can find it and it will help you get there, it will also tell you information about that place as well. And I think this is going to be really cool. It's not just, of course, restaurants. It could be, you know, you go to a transit station, you could be using an ATM. There's lots and lots of things you can do with this and be able to use your phone camera to just search. And of course, let's not forget guided frame which was a feature they announced last year. It's starting to come through uh, in the latest updates on Pixel only at the moment. Uh, but guided frame is a way of being able to take a selfie um, and be guided to take your selfie. You know, you want to make sure that you're actually in the shot, right? So yeah, it yeah. will help you in a really cool way. It uses haptic feedback. It uses beeps and boops and all the other stuff that these phones do. Uh, but it will also talk to you as well and say, hey, you're in frame. Now let's take the picture kind of thing. Ooh. And it just makes it more fun. And I think this is absolutely fantastic. I love seeing what they are, uh, they're doing um, with, these, with this technology because it really is making a difference to us as blind yeah. people. But yeah, I got to say, I'm jealous. I'm jealous. <laughs> a little fun, a little functional. It's making uh, Stephen Scott jealous. Yeah. There you go. That's the whole point. Someone at Google just did a huge fist pump. We made Stephen Scott jealous. That's the whole goal. Mm. That's the whole Google goal. I've got goal. two fists in the air right now. I'm <laughs> enraged. What uh, am I doing with this? What am I doing with this stupid <laughs> iPhone? Get me on. Get me on Google immediately. Uh, Stephen, double tap daily hits AMI-audio's yes. airwaves in exactly one hour and 31 minutes, noon Eastern time on AMI-audio. What do you and Sean have lined up for today? Do you know what I'm really excited about today's show, Dave? And I'm sorry to take time up on this, but honestly, this is so cool because uh, Soundscape is, is an app that a lot of blind people know about. It's an app that helps us navigate around and orientate ourselves. Sadly, it was uh, it was sunsetted, I think is the word, by uh, Microsoft at the tail end of last year and uh, has become an open source project. Today on the show, we have one of the original co-founders of Microsoft Soundscape, the oh, guy sick. who actually developed it. Uh, and he's going to be on the show, and I am asking him the difficult question that is, what really happened at Microsoft Ooh. that meant that they sunsetted this product? Will he answer the question or not? You've got to find out today. Oh, hashtag journalism with Stephen Scott. Don't want to miss that one. Stephen, thank you for this. Have a lovely day. Thanks, Dave. Have a great day. That's Stephen Scott. He's one of the co-hosts of Double Tap. You can find that show daily noon eastern time on ami audio i rarely to if ever miss it i'm delighted when it pours through the loudspeakers and the audio control room into my studio into my office but uh, sometimes it's not always the case so you got to go above and beyond to track down the stream or download the podcast but Stephen and sean do a phenomenal job daily on double tap noon eastern on ami audio coming up after the break Traffic congestion, it's uh, an annoyance. Maybe even you could call it a full-blown problem. The doors of Dave Brown Consulting will be thrown open to see if Ramya Anwithan, Nazreen Abdel-Majid, Elizabeth Moeller, or myself 
can win the city planning gold medal and solve traffic congestion. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Elizabeth Moeller, you've got the city planning topic and issues on top of mind, especially traffic congestion in the GTA. I certainly do. It's uh, interesting. There are more construction projects right now in Toronto than any other North American city. So we know that construction and traffic mitigation requires pretty comprehensive strategies for motorists, cyclists, pedestrians, and the like. But interestingly as well, there's talk of an, an app, a QR code that would be pleasant placed at construction sites that people could scan to get information, real-time information, such as length of the closure, company doing the work, and a number for emergency contact information. So we're opening up the doors of Dave Brown Consulting, and we're asking, what do you think needs to be done to mitigate traffic in our city? So Nazreen, I'm going to throw to you. I think uh, it would be helpful if people would finish faster because I feel like it doesn't end. Uh, it, it never ends, the construction. So I, th- I the QR codes are a great idea. I think everybody has questions. Okay, how long this will take? Will I need to find a different route for a while? Um, so it is uh, it is a helpful um, uh, thing, but I yeah, construction does take forever for everything especially in toronto so um yeah yeah toronto is a game of cones right there's just orange cones everywhere (laughs) there's a development here a development there now this sidewalk is blocked now that sidewalk is blocked now the whole road is closed but there's nowhere to cross and the traffic lights are out and there's traffic everywhere and people are honking and it's wild and i'm just talking about my experience here in north york where you know it's it's by no means the city core elizabeth you're down there in the city core what are you running into as you're making your way up and down through the west end Yeah, absolutely. So we're running into really big problems with parking because of bike lanes. So some some streets are down to sort of one lane of traffic. Um, And we're also running into issues about trying to implement, you know, walk-only spaces, such as in the good old High Park. Um, And I think another big thing that I've run into is unexpected closures or unexpected construction sites. So I'll walk out my apartment door like I did just this morning, and there's literally a torn-up sidewalk. And yes. A yes. So yeah. So so that's it, right, Elizabeth? You're really identifying what gets me. We can put all the QR codes next to like yep. the big condo developments, but there's two problems with that idea. Number one is that there are the little random tear ups that happen in the middle of the afternoon or the middle of the day outside your apartment, which end up being a huge access barrier. But there's also the reality of okay, there's a QR code, uh, you know, around this construction site, but you have to like walk through the danger to go get to the QR code. It's like, yeah, 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 there's information for you. Uh, Just walk through this rickety plank plank of wood and uh, try not to fall into this pit of gravel, and then you can snap a picture of the QR code, and there's no assurance that website's actually going to be accessible anyway. 
You're running towards the danger, literally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like in a sense, you're running towards the danger. Elizabeth, you mentioned the walk-only component. I wonder if it's too. I wonder if it's too late for that genie to go back in the Toronto bottle. I, I just think the city's grown so much in the last 30 or 40 years, and it was not built for as many people as it already has. That you almost can't take away roads at this point, even in places yeah. like the downtown core. It just feels yeah. like it's too late in the game to start moving towards these walk-only models. Because I think about Front Street, for example. Like, wouldn't it be lovely if the area around Union Station was walk-only, but then it yeah. would just turn into a nightmare everywhere around Union Station? Well, and how do you get to Union Station if you're from out of town? That's great to say walk only, but if you're driving in from, say, Oakville to get a train, that's not going to be feasible. I, th I think you raise a good point, and I know that part of the challenge with walk only is is for people that that require a vehicle for access needs. So I think I think part of you know what I what I really want to see is um, more buses that do like the express buses um you know part of a lot of times people will tell me i drive because the transit's just not good and i need yeah. to get somewhere so that's one thing and you know dare i say 24-hour subway um you know we're, we're living in a world now where you know we're people are doing shift work and people are, are um, you know, lives are, our lives are busy. And so that, I think that would really help. But I also think, you know, if not having those, those walk only zones, you know, maybe zones where it's shuttle bus only would be, would be another way to sort yeah. of combat some of that. What, the Toronto TTC subway starts like 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 at a really six. yeah six in the morning, which is super late. Like like and eight on Sunday. Yeah, like like that is super super late. I, I'll never yeah. understand how on earth they can have that thing start at six o'clock if there's people who might be working across the city. Like I'm not like like first of all, yes, 24 hours, but I also understand that might not be totally feasible. But the idea that it's not up and running at 4:35 a.m. Yeah, like people Completely. start people start work at six o'clock in the morning. People start yep. work at five in the morning, for gosh sakes, at some of like the donut and coffee shop places around the yep. downtown core. Yep. Uh, Nazreen, what's, what's your vibe on like the walk only movement to say we are going to take cars off the streets completely in downtown cores? Uh, again, I, I, I express a little bit of hesitation on it because it's a little too late in the game. Toronto's not designed to be built like that, nor is Montreal, nor is Vancouver, nor is Halifax. Like these cities have been built for hundreds mm -hmm. of years without that infrastructure in mind. But what's your vibe on the idea of creating pedestrian only zones? Even if it's pedestrian only, I feel like there's so many uh, streets or sidewalks that are not, uh, it's not accessible to even pedestrians where you have to take uh, a turn or go on to an, the next street to walk through. So I feel like regardless, a lot of people, as you mentioned, Dave, that there's so many people driving or taking the bus. I mean, I thought about you know, moving to Toronto instead of Mississauga because, you know, it's just easier. I could yeah. walk around. Yeah. And then mm -hmm. when I'm in Toronto and I'm going to the hospital or whatever, there's so many spots where I can't walk. It's not accessible for me and I can't drive regardless. So, uh, either way, it just doesn't work for me. So, um, I think the walk only is just not going to work out. It doesn't work that way. There's so many places that are not accessible and, for a lot of people, it's just not, it, it wouldn't work out. Yeah, I, I think about the pedestrian-only mall in Ottawa called Spark Street, Spark Street Outdoor Mall. And it's like, it's a 
fine enough place, I suppose, but it's supposed to be pedestrian only, except every day you're walking down there and there's vans and trucks zooming down. Yeah. And then what the business owners tell you is, well, we need to get stuff delivered to us. And the only place it can be delivered to us is on Spark Street by allowing the trucks and the vans on Spark Street. And then they wonder why nobody, no pedestrians are actually coming to the mall. It's because there's cars all day, Elizabeth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I and I think that that's the thing too, right? Again, you think about these businesses need things delivered, or in the case of High Park, a big thing was access. So, you know, pedestrian only sounds great, but then when you think about it from a, a disability lens, that, that's not going to work for everybody. High Park's huge. So if you're saying, I want to go to the restaurant in the middle of the park, but oh, by the way, you know, you can't drive in, that's a problem. So, you know, whether it's having shuttles or, you know, cars allowed at certain times of the day supplemented by shuttles, there needs to be something to support people people who, for whom a pedestrian only is not going to work. Yeah. Hey, really interesting topic here. Thank you for bringing it to the table, Elizabeth. Nazreen, thank you for your thoughts on this one as well. You may have noticed that Ramya is not here this morning, but Kelly and Ramya still hitting the airwaves today at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio and AMI-tv, so don't forget to check that out. I have a sneaking suspicion because it's a Monday. That means that Danielle McLaughlin will be stopping by for the Know Your Rights segment. And when Danielle stops by... Oh, there's always some interesting chatter. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts.